Welcome to Best Picture This, where it is always Oscar season. I'm Mike. And I'm Brian. In this show, we reevaluate every Best Picture nominee from the 21st century and decide whether to keep it or kick it from its Oscar pedestal. But today we get to do a lot more than just keep and kick, Brian. We get to rank. We get to recap. <laughs> and you know my favorite, we we've get all, to renounce. We've all been waiting for the <laughs> renunciation list. I love to renounce and I love to replace. Mm-hmm. So that's why I look forward to these year in review episodes. We don't just think we're smarter than the Oscars. No, I think we, 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 we actually legitimately are. are. Yeah, actually that's are. not in question. So in 2003, the Oscars, let's go over their nominees. Mm-hmm. For Best Picture, were Master and Commander of the Far Side of the World, Lost in Translation, Mystic River, Seabiscuit, and the year's big winner, The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. 11 Oscars. 11 big ones. For Peter Jackson and company. Mm-hmm. Coming up in this finale episode for 2003, we will first reorder the Oscars top five. They don't give them in order, but we know, do. We'll, we'll put them in order for them. Then we'll ask each other one question designed to answer once and for all, which is the lesser of two evils. <laughs> we will talk trivia. We will give a grand reveal, what we've all been waiting for, the personal top fives of 2003. We'll do some more Oscar kicks. And then should we do hot takes to conclude? Or I thought, should we go I thought about this too a lot last Sh- night, but I think probably stick with Let, the golden takes. Let's, let's do golden. So Mike, what is? how would you reorder the top five? Well, first of all, I just want to say that mm-hmm. I don't think that there's been one time on this show that you've said the lesser of two weevils or that's come up and I haven't <laughs> laughed. <laughs> it's funny every time. It doesn't ever get old. But my five from the bottom up, my number five. Mm-hmm. The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. Oh, you, more than Seabiscuit? Wow. You know, you know what? That's I, a harsh I struggled, kick. I struggled with it a bit, <laughs> and I did wonder, am I just trolling with this, putting The Lord of the Rings under <laughs> Seabiscuit, because Seabiscuit is my number four. But I thought, when I watched Seabiscuit, I was thinking, this is fine. I wasn't impressed, but mm-hmm. I wasn't really actively disliking did it. Did you watch the extended Seabiscuit? I should Because mine was four hours long. <laughs> four hours and 10 minutes. <laughs> but with Return of the King, there were times where I was physically upset. <laughs> so I had to put it as my number five. Wow. Number three, Master and Commander, then Lost in Translation. And my number one is Mystic River. Mystic River. Very good. Um, my number five is Seabiscuit and Lord of the Rings, number four. And I will say that my top three, I had a lot of uh, debate on, but I finally f- settled with Mystic River, number three, Lost in Translation 2 and Master and Commander number one. Oh, wow. Okay. Yep. It's, so Mystic River and and Master and Commander or Lost in Translation, do you feel like there was a big gap between there, any of those? There really wasn't. Um, but there are others that are that are in that, that same category. I, I think we'll get into it more when I get to the golden takes because deciding which one to keep and kick from my own personal list we we agonize over this. We do. We take this yeah. more seriously than our jobs, most important. our families. <laughs> In certain moments, maybe you're right. <laughs> so deciding which of two movies to kick, like you like to think that, well, this is just art. We're supposed to just, you know, judge it on its own merit. And it's not like a competition with something else, but it ultimately you do have to choose which one you would take on the desert island and which one you wouldn't which ones disappear forever from cinema history exactly renunciation (laughs) um so do you want we'll we'll get to the i want to hear more explanation of why you picked which ones you did but we'll probably get to that once we do the personal top fives yeah i think so so the question 
my question, we are asking the question. Yeah, we are. Um, I'll go first with my question. <laughs> the okay. script says you're supposed to say, uh, here's did I, did my I question. Okay, you so totally, I was waiting for you for you no totally reason. Botched so that, that was my fault. All right. Um, but it's another fun outtake. Sure. Now we won't cut that. No, we'll leave everything um, in. <laughs> so um, Lord of the Rings mm -hmm. suffers in part because it's trying to cram hundreds of pages into three hours, I think. Um so my question is, because this was in 2003 that this third one came out, do you think that the resurgence of the miniseries format will mean that we won't really have that problem in the future? The resurgence of the miniseries format. Yeah, so you're saying you got, if Lord of the Rings were a TV show instead why of... Why not make it 10 episodes or 12 episodes? No one would complain about that. They would yeah. understand it's like a one-year you know, season, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Um, so would, would that... If you broke it up and maybe had, you know, different little a mini arc each time, you think that would have been better? And maybe we're not going to have this problem with other uh, long form storytelling. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely see it. And I think that maybe the fact that Lord of the Rings is going is going into TV form through Amazon Prime for this new series. And that's kind of them realizing that, you know, if we do have this story to tell and we want to create this vast, expansive universe that the way to do that is over the course of episodes where we can focus on just one clan, one territory per episode. If there's anything we've learned from this show so far, it's that Lord of the Rings could use a reboot. You know? <laughs> yeah, well, The Hobbit. Have you seen The Hobbit movies? I have them in my house, but I have not watched any of the three. Yeah, I hate to say it because I do consider myself a Lord of the Rings fan, weirdly enough. But I, I... You just kicked it over below, below Seabiscuit and you say you're a Lord of the Rings fan? And... I didn't even see the I second think, Hobbit, the second two Hobbit movies. I think you're after not the first. the Lord of the Rings fan. But I love the first one. And the second <laughs> one, I think, is 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 great. Mm -hmm. But um, the third one really rubbed me the wrong way. And just the Hobbit movies just felt like more of the stuff that I didn't like so much from mm. Return of the King. And those long action sequences, I think, were a big part of that. So I should do the classic Brian McMillan watches 30 minutes per day of The Hobbit. Would that be better? God, try to that cram would it still all take you a lot of days, though, because those <laughs> movies are long also. Or should I just binge the whole movie? Uh, just, whatever you do, don't invite me over when okay. you do it. That, that's all I ask. All right. But yeah, I, I do think that the TV format is good for things like this. Mm -hmm. You know, I, 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 TV has gotten very, very good, you know, in, in recent, I guess, decades now, not years. But there's something about the cinema experience and the theater experience that I wouldn't want to lose. Mm -hmm. And... I am hesitant saying like if any if you have a big story to tell just put it into TV because it almost seems like I don't know that's a way to stretch everything out rather than trying to edit into you know an ep an epic if you have 5 hours of things can you scale it down to 3 3 and a half and make it into an epic movie rather than a six part miniseries I think I'd prefer that It would be interesting to review this I don't know if I brought this up before but to look back over the years and see which original screenplays versus adapted when it's adapted from a longer work that doesn't just fit into two hours easily. Mm -hmm. How often are the best originals actually more, more uh, effective than the best adapteds? I mean, Mystic River was adapted from a novel, um, but I didn't necessarily feel like um, it must've been cramming, even though I, I haven't read the novel, but I haven't read all the Lord of the Rings either. So, yeah. but it'd be interesting to see a, a, a script that is written for the screen, you know, it fits the format better. You would think mm -hmm. 
I, I find that there are times in a, when it's adapted that there are sometimes sort of like repeated scenes that might seem more natural in a novel than they would in a movie because it's only like a few minutes later and then they're kind of in this same setting again. I'll mm. have to think more about that and find a, do, do some analysis. Yeah. Are you a the book's always better person? I am not. Good. I'm if not. you were, I was going to end the <laughs> episode right here and there. So my question to you, mm-hmm. has your right now we're, we're ending 2003. This is the fourth year that we've been doing these. Mm-hmm. So has your approach changed at all in the four movie years that we've done, that we've covered? This is the fourth year or the fifth year? 99, 2000, 2001, 2003. Four 2002. years. 2002. Did I skip 2002? I think you did. Oh. 990123. This is the fifth. Okay. Inclusive. <laughs> so, fifth year. So, so what years. was the question again? So, I was distracted by your math. My math was <laughs> I'm a liberal arts guy, Brian. You know this. So has your approach changed at all in terms of how you rank movies, what you're looking for in them, you know, uh, what you like and dislike? Has I've has, been yeah, I've been agonizing over this. Fifteen no, thirty minutes ago, I changed one out of my top five. Wow, okay. Yeah. So what was the deciding factor? What swayed you? Well, this is kind of what my golden take is. So I'm just going to take my, I'm just going to do my golden take okay. right now, early. Um, I had, I think that I realized that rewatchability is a bigger deal than I was probably thinking in, mm. in the 99, 2000 range. Okay. You've said, you said last time that, the high highs is a really big deal. And I was thinking about that kind of rule as I was going through my list here. Um, Mystic river had one of the highest highs of the year for me that, that like last scene with the, the sort of, I keep thinking of it as the lady Macbeth scene. Yeah. We keep, we keep uh, bringing that up. That was one of the highest highs of the year, but it ended up being third on my top, on my, uh, my uh, reordering of the Oscars. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's in part because maybe it's not it's not the one that I'm going to go reach for, you know. Soon, there are some movies that I watch and I feel like, yeah, I'm I I really liked it, but I'm content to not necessarily watch it again anytime real soon. Um, so rewatchability, this idea of what are you stuck with on the desert island? Yeah. With, um, th- I think the greatest art rewards multiple viewings, multiple readings, and you get something different out of it every time or whatever, because the ideas have some complexity to them maybe, or sometimes it's, it might be kind of confusing, but you still like it. You know, that, that happens to me a lot. I I kind of enjoy that because it's kind of like a challenge in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, so rewatchability, what are you stuck on the desert Island with? It has it, it it changed one of my movies to go into my top five and kicked another one out of it. I could see it because I guess that's similar to that question I had about Master and Commander the first mm-hmm. time where I'd seen it before we did this series and I felt like, oh, I have to watch that again. I remember that mm-hmm. movie being boring. But then I looked back in my letterbox and I forestarred it. <laughs> I'm like, where did that come from? Yeah. And even now I watched it for a second time. I liked it just as much the second time. But mm-hmm. in my brain, I still have that feeling of like, don't really yeah, I, don't watch need, it. I don't need yeah. to watch it again. That I, I felt, yeah, it, it, that's kind of a weird, that's where it's totally personal thing, right? I mean, one movie you might be excited to watch another time and another one you wouldn't. Um, so I, I think that there's more analysis or figuring out that I could do why it belongs on the desert island but that was one that was one factor um I realized too that kind of talking about these movies writing about them 
having a conversation about them, that sort of that that brings out a lot of truth in your experience also because you could you could the credits could roll on a movie and you can think that you have a pretty firm idea of what you thought about it. Mm-hmm. But then when you sit down, you really start working through some themes like, well, why did I like that scene? Why didn't I like that other scene? Mm-hmm. All of a sudden you start expanding and, you know, you have a you have a much more dynamic idea of um, what the director was trying to say, what stands out in the movie and why. And maybe that sort of emboldens your takes, your golden takes. <laughs> Make It goldifies it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I feel like one thing that has been more difficult and almost kind of like it doesn't ruin the movie experience, but trying to come up with the rule of why I like it or why I don't so that I can kind of guide future, you know, less agonizing in future years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that is often a fool's errand because yeah. they are so different. And I can't say like, well, this one had the highest high, therefore it's it's the best. Or I, I might break my desert island rule, you know, next year too. But, you know, it's okay that each year it kind of adjusts, I guess. Um, yeah, and you can't break it down into an equation and pretend that it's math, yeah. you know, because these are sort of emotional decisions and we're talking about We're art. liberal arts majors. We're, <laughs> yeah, we don't, we don't do all these numbers <laughs> games. But for me, when I was thinking about this, I feel like I've always valued surprise in movies, you yeah. know, those high highs, the movie mm-hmm. going in directions I didn't anticipate. Mm-hmm. I've never really been a fan of biopics and the idea of a, quote, prestige picture has always annoyed me. Mm-hmm. And I feel like over the course of these five years, all of those things have gotten sort of stronger and they've made me want to make more of a conscious effort to sort of make sure that these lists are personalized, you know, make sure that I'm not picking movies that I feel like I should be picking, mm-hmm. that I'm picking movies that have legitimately made the biggest impact on my life, whether or not it's, um, uh, you know, an intellectual impact or otherwise. I don't think that it has to always be intellectual or academic. Something else, though, that I think is what I keep trying to guard against is I, lo- I, I like watch I like seeing top lists of everything practically, and I look at top music lists a lot every year, top songs, top albums from different people, and some critics end up putting a song that's in their top ten. And it's mostly because they want other people to listen to it mm-hmm. and not, you know, that it's not like they legitimately thought this was the number two song that was made the best number, you know, second best song made that year. Um, they just, they put in sometimes weird things that no one really knows that much about and to, to mix it in. And it's mostly an advocacy thing. So I keep trying to also not just fall into that because if a movie's great and everybody else thinks it's great, it's okay for me to also think it's great. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I don't yeah. want to just like be a contrarian for the sake of that. Yeah. But I guess in a way the lists are sort of about discovery where you're kind of planting yeah. your flag in different movies and saying it like this be, one's yeah. for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I, I think that the part of the, a big part of the fun about these is why would somebody pick a certain movie as yeah. their number one or their number mm-hmm. two? And you learn about the person through that process and what they have to say about about that rather than just um you know the academy says that these are the five best so they must be at least in the top 10 (laughs) which for for my experience that hasn't been the case well this is why when you meet somebody or when i meet somebody i'm often curious like what kind of movies do you like you Mm -hmm. know 
sounds very teenagery to ask that question, <laughs> but I think it does kind of say it helps you get to know somebody quickly. Like, well, I love this movie. I don't like that movie. Yeah. And then if they like bad ones, you dismiss that person yeah, altogether you kind of just and you move on. Yeah. Slowly turn away and don't say anything. To <laughs> All right. So your question. <laughs> I already asked my question. You already, I, I feel like I've done this we a lot. We both asked our questions. All right. Like, we're moving on. Have then. we not? Trivia time before we get to the grand reveal. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoyed... Um, Something's Gotta Give. Yeah, it's a good one. I didn't put it in my top five. Spoiler. Um, spoiler alert. <laughs> but I thought, you know what? I I think Diane Keaton deserves a little bit of... I want to learn read a little more about Diane Keaton because okay. she was really great in the movie. Way over the top crying scene when she breaks up. It, it, was, it was almost like hard to watch when she's just like comically crying too much. <laughs> um, but I really love Diane Keaton. So I did a little... Uh, reading about her. So here's a couple trivia items about her. Diane Keaton studied drama at Santa Ana College before dropping out, which the best. that's awesome. Yeah. Way to drop out, Diane. Diane Keaton um, in uh, the title role of Annie Hall for 1977 w- uh, was written for her by Woody Allen. I didn't realize that. But her name, her real last name is actually Hall and her nickname is Annie. Um, so... I did not know that. <laughs> so um, she also has directed some things, and um, she actually directed an episode of Twin Peaks. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, we, we we haven't re- re- revisited uh, David Lynch since our Mulholland Drive. He's come up a few times here and there, but are we coming up on a David Lynch movie that we, we can, we're going to watch? Uh, maybe... Well, Fire Walk With Me, I think, was in the 90s, the late 90s. Um, Inland Empire would probably be the next one huh. after Mulholland Drive, but that, that I think, is later, like 2008-ish, okay. maybe. Um, one more thing about Diane Keaton. So she changed her name to... Uh, she was, like, in a acting troupe. Someone else was named Diane Hall, so she named... Her, she just picked Diane Keaton. Um, there's another actor in the same acting group or he heard about this his name was michael douglas but michael douglas can't be you can't you can't go in hollywood being michael douglas because there's already a michael douglas like oh i like i like keaton i heard about Diane <laughs> keaton so he changed his name to michael keaton oh that's nice. michael keaton he changed he stole his name he stole his fake name from diane keaton's fake name <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> i know right um I also thought it would be interesting to look up Pirates of the Caribbean. So this is the first Disney movie that was rated PG-13. I thought that was hmm. interesting. Okay. Um, the studio thought, uh, because there were some scenes that they thought would be too intense for a five-year-old, which I totally agree with because my six-year-old was freaked out. Um, but the studio was confident enough to add The Curse of the Black Pearl because they figured that there would be sequels made. Just like Master and Commander, though. Yeah, That's like the kiss that of didn't death. Work. That didn't work. Um, but Gore Verbinski, who directed it, he uh, disliked the new title because it's actually Aztec gold that's cursed, not the ship. Hmm. So he requested that the title of the movie be unreadable on the poster. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> I guess you have to go real close to see it when he's on the poster because he if if you're gonna do that, just change the name. Yeah. Just change the name. Um all right, so top fives. It's the big one. The big reveal. So I'll go first because I like the suspense of yours. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So here are my top five. First off, I watched twenty two movies for two thousand three. Um 
and I did not see a few key movies. So I have to get that. I missed as a, a couple. Don't. Yeah. <clears throat> also. So I didn't, I wanted to watch 21 grams. Didn't get to that. I couldn't find a filter. Kill Bill. No filter. Wanted to watch that. Shame. Um, City of God. Same thing. I also did not watch Owning Mahoney and I didn't realize it was Philip Seymour Hoffman. So I was kind of disappointed that I didn't discover that in time to watch it. Didn't see Whale Rider, which I didn't really care that much about, but it did make a lot of people's lists. So, um, a lot of movies were close. School of Rock was close. Matrix Reloaded, I really enjoyed. 28 Days Later, I thought so much, so many good things about. These are probably in your top five, so <laughs> I just want to throw them out there that they were close for me. Um, a, a movie that surprised me that I thought was basically just as good as School of Rock was Bruce Almighty. Wow. And uh, Jennifer Aniston is super good in the movie. Wait, is that your number five? No, it is not. Here are my top five. Drum roll. Okay. Number five is Lost in Translation. We did a whole episode about it. We did. So maybe we don't need to say a whole lot more. But I feel sort of at home in that movie. And it's a desert island kind of experience. I didn't love it as much as I did the first time when I watched it this time. But the more I thought about it, the more I liked it. And I like it. So I'm going with that number five. Number four is the movie that I swapped out last minute. Okay. And that's American Splendor. Ah, nice. I'm including it in my top five. So wait, it was out. It was out. And then out. you put it in as four, not five. I did. Interesting. I did. Okay. Um, <laughs> so what was it four? It shows that the you... nonsensical nature of these lists in some ways. Yeah. But it was going to be in America at number four. Okay. And I thought... You know, I had a really great emotional response to that movie. I really loved um, Samantha Morton. She was nominated for Best Actress, and I thought she was just fantastic. The acting all around was great. The kids were really funny, believable, and very touching. Um, and I thought that there was a lot of uh, pretty bold visuals throughout throughout the movie. Um, but, you know, if I just said which movie I'm most excited to see again, I think American Splendor has this interesting intellectual complexity to it that makes me want to see that more on a rewatch than I would in America. Um, You know, this idea of ordinary life is pretty complex stuff. You know, the line, I love Paul Giamatti. Um, And I love movies that have, that are sort of commenting about the form. And this one does that in such an original, strange and wonderful way that it makes it a more memorable movie for me. Make takes big chances. Um, it's funny in a lot of surprising ways. So that's number four for me. Number three um, is Monster. And it could have been higher. Um, if not for, it's not really the world that I'm dying to go be in all the time, right? But Charlize Theron is so incredible in this movie. It's one of the best of the decade acting performances, in my opinion, not just of the year. And um, I, I love her as an actress anyway. So we did, a, again, we did an episode about Monster um, as we did American Splendor and Lost in Translation. So you can go check those episodes out. But um that's my number three. Number two is my surprise throw in, and that is Pirates of the Caribbean. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Pirates of the Caribbean. Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, number one is Master and Commander for me. So you so were, I you were talk going about on Pirates. Kind of a nautical kick. Quite a year. bit. Quite a bit. Those two, I realized those are like the two swashbucklingest <laughs> movies of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, Pirates of the Caribbean, I almost didn't watch. 
because I'd seen it before, but it had been a long time, probably since almost 2003 since I'd seen it. Um, that's when I fell in love with Kira Knightley. Um, and Johnny Depp, Jack Sparrow, you'd look at the past 30 years and you try to think of who are the enduring iconic characters uh, uh, in, in movie history <clears throat> in that past, say, 25, 30 years. He's one of them. Um, it, it's interesting to, to have, him, have that character and Charlize Theron. Johnny Depp was nominated for Best Actor in this movie, which is also kind of interesting because it's a pretty weird role to get nominated for, yeah. in my opinion. But as far as like creating this original... Um, you know, being in a movie that was based on a Disneyland ride, right? <laughs> Talk about pulling something that is like so funny and original and creative out of something like that. And, you know, he, yeah, he based it on like, you know, a, a weird Keith Richards impersonation sort of, but when he, I don't know, just, just the, uh, the tone is so strange this kind of like confidence, but silliness, um, and the 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 outsmarting of everybody, right? He 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 he's like the curse is gonna kill everybody, um, but yet he lets himself be be cursed just to have this like trickery. Anyway, the plot is so twisty and turny um, that I just I realize you know what. How did you go this go long with without Caribbean? ever seeing Pirates of the Caribbean? I did. I saw it in like 03-ish. Oh, okay. I saw okay. it. I did see it that one time, but I kind of like, you know, I saw the second one and I kind the of second one's brutal. didn't want to see any of the other ones. Yeah. It's kind of the same stuff over and over again and gets more and more outlandish. But, um, but yeah, Johnny Depp in that first one, that's kind of where that character is born. And I think he deserves a whole lot of credit for it. And it makes me very memorable and desert Island pirates of the Caribbean. They go well together. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's true. And also you can watch one when you're feeling happy and jaunty. And then mm -hmm. when you're feeling a little, a little more highbrow, mm -hmm. you pop in master and commander oh, and the you highest of the brows, highbrow, high seas. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, with Master and Commander, we talked about this. I, I was very high on it when we uh, when we did that episode, and I think that Paul Bettany um, is kind of like the the heart of that movie. You know, his relationship with Russell Crowe's character is is great, but also his like, you know, he's the one who's the conscience of the movie. You know, he's he's uh, um, criticizing Russell Crowe just doing you know abandoning all the safety of, of the the crew. But yet Paul Bettany also has this like scientific, you know, Darwinian sense of discovery yeah. that I just loved all those scenes. And that may be again, like a personal, you know, I've always been interested in, in, uh, in studying all that kind of stuff. So that, that could be honestly one of the reasons why it stands out to me that much. I, I, um, I'm with you on that though, because yeah. That is Russell Crowe's movie, but yeah. I don't think it works without Paul Bettany working yeah. as the foil. Russell Crowe's kind of the heart, Bettany's sort of the yeah. head, and that's what makes the whole thing sort of click into place. But Russell Crowe is, that's, I think he's at his best in that movie, even though I do, I did like Beautiful Mind, and I think he's great in The Insider and everything, and yeah. great in Gladiator. <clears throat> but I feel like this is where he look. he feels like actually himself. Hmm. You know, he's not trying to play, you know, this other kind of like, 
strange mental mental case. Yeah. This it feels like you're hanging out with Russell Crowe the guy in this movie and like he just should have been born yeah, in that time he's such those a, like a fun person and <laughs> and uh you know the the idea of sitting around the table you feel like you can sit around the table with russell crowe in that movie and yeah. that's what it would really be like especially if he has more of those dad jokes oh yeah because then i'm in <laughs> so i have to say that i am yeah. very very glad that you didn't put in america in your top five <laughs> because i've been sort of holding off talking to you about it just because i if you were going to put it in your top you didn't five, want to crush it i was no i would have roasted you if you put it in your top would five. you really I saw it. I would reject your roasting because I did like that movie. So there. I put it, I saw it years and years ago. It was probably around 06. And I really, really liked it Mm -hmm. on on Letterboxd. I put it as a four and a half. So Mm -hmm. I was kind of looking forward to watching it this time. Yeah. And I was just shocked at how much of a different experience I had with it this time around. I just found it phony and super manipulative. I just thought that it did a lot of emotional tricks to try to jerk those tears. The thing within America, though... Because I read a review of it that said the opposite of what you just said, that it, it goes into that territory, but manages to stay above it. And I think it also manages to stay above it. But there are a few moments where I agree with you that it kind of, it, it does, it, it, it's same, same to me. There's a little bit of this kind of sentiment, it borders into the sentimentality where it's trying to get a little more out of it than it seems it deserved. But I feel like a little bit that's why I ended up not including Mystic River on this. Even though it has high highs and there's this like really cool kind of like darkness throughout, there is some of that that feels like Oscar Beatty to me. And it it threw me out of the groove just enough that I didn't put it in there. Although it's not like it's far behind Lost in Translation. I mean, I on a different day, I could possibly put it in there and I wouldn't mind watching it again. But that's kind of where it didn't quite hit my top five for me. And I think the difference is, is Mystic River is sort of honest up front that it is genre and a melodrama. And in America, it tries to sell you on, these are real people that we are supposed to care about, but it keeps, it it just forces them to suffer the whole movie long and then kicks them when they're down over and over (laughs) and over again. It gives us this neighbor character who seems like a total psychopath for the first yeah. you know couple of minutes and then you know he's got a heart of gold and then we have to watch <laughs> him die it's just like one thing after another i just felt like that movie was just like sucker punching me over and over again toward the end it did it made me respect it more though the fact that it was like based off of Sheridan's autobiographical yeah. yeah so that that kind of gave me that made me feel like you know it's pretty hard to take your life experience and turn it into something really moving for everybody else and i think it was mostly successful but I, get, I mean, we don't want to spend too much time on this because this is not an, 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 not an America episode, but it, it's based off of real life and yeah. there's definitely craft there. Mm-hmm. But I almost feel like the craft works against it because Sheridan doesn't know how these narrative work narratives yeah. work. He knows how to pay off um, suffering, you know, in the first act and then give us that moment in the third act that makes it all seem worth it somehow. Mm-hmm. But maybe there were just too many of those moments where it felt it, it didn't feel um, authentic to me. But my my five. Your top five. My top five. Number Number five, 28 Days Later. It's the best horror movie of the year. Yep. I love the look and the feel, and it brought zombies back. What else do I need to say? I I agree. Loved it. Um, I guess since you did a little bit of an honorable mentions thing at the front. Yeah, tell me some honorable mentions. I want to hear some. American Splendor is not going to make my list, and The Matrix Reloaded is not going to make my list. What? 
those were the ones that were on the cusp. <laughs> I really wanted them in there, um, but I just I, I, I felt figured for sure Reloaded gets on your list. Reloaded and Twenty Eight Days Later were really going back and yeah. forth for this last spot. And mm-hmm. I guess where I came to it was, I think that maybe Reloaded. I like my, the reasons that I like it are a little bit more personal. I like that it the pacing. What's wrong with personal? No, but I mean, I need to play I, a clip I, of I a see, previous episode. I see that's the, enough. I see the pacing <laughs> as a problem in that movie. Hmm. I kind of like that it goes from very dense exposition to crazy action because it's weird. I like that it's sort of ambitious and they're trying to fit so much in it. Mm-hmm. But I could also see 100% why somebody would watch that movie and think like, what are we talking about now? What is this guy saying in the architect room, you know, with all these TVs mm-hmm. around, throwing around big words? It just seems like they're trying to do a lot with that. And um, I like it, but I could see that it, maybe it wouldn't work for other people. And I get it. Number four, School of Rock, mm-hmm. another personal pick. But I mean, come on. I've said, I said in our episode School with School of Rock, of Rock great. that this informed my vocabulary growing up and, and my friends <laughs> You group. promised that School of Rock would be on, so. Yeah. I mean, if these picks are supposed to symbolize the only five movies of the year that we are keeping and the rest disappear, I can't live without School of Rock. <laughs> it's coming with me. It's, it's my number four. Very number good. three is Mystic River. Mm-hmm. Movie full of contradictions Great movie. and melodrama, like I said, and I couldn't get it out of my head for, for weeks. I just think that it's like great middle brow drama. Mm-hmm. It's accessible, but it's also got meat there to chew on if you want. So it's kind of right in the middle there where Definitely. It's, it, it, it's kind of a great... Um, it's another one where there's probably some of it where just like Monster maybe in in some ways, it's certainly in many ways superior movie to Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, but there's something about like, which world am I excited to go back into? I'm a little more excited to go into the pirates world. All right. <laughs> You're speaking your truth, Brian. I am. That's I'm what speaking this is my truth. I like that Mystic River is kind of shiny and gritty yeah. at the same time. I love that mix. My number two is Monster. Mm-hmm. I think that Monster does a, pretty much everything that Mystic River does except for $22 million less than Mystic River. And <laughs> wait, wait, wait. That isn't, You're giving no, them credit? No, 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 no. That's not the reason why it's over. I love Theron's performance in this. Yeah. It's just like, it, it's legendary. And yeah. I don't think that, I can't get rid of that for one thing, but I also just love how it's, it's so many things at once. You know, it's this super focused character study and it's this broad social justice essay mm-hmm. almost. And that takes some serious chops to do, especially given the fact that it is so dark, but it feels fun to watch. But I mean, you could you could write a thesis about this movie if you wanted you to and, and 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 sort of base it on the fact that morality is impossibly complex and there is no right and wrong. And Mystic River, it's it feels like it's more complicated. But at the end of the day, I mean, we're still we're still talking about bad guys doing bad things. And Monster, I think, transcends that conversation a little bit. Number one. My number one is Kill Bill. That's what I was thinking it would be. So we didn't cover Kill Bill. Nope. And tell, me, tell me why you love Kill I Bill. I wish we would have covered it because when I saw this for the first time, I was mm-hmm. 16 years old mm-hmm. and I'd never seen anything more creative or crazy, I think, than this movie. There's insane blood spray. I saw this one billboard <laughs> that they made for this movie where Uma Thurman is holding a sword in the corner and the entire billboard is white. And there's blood spraying out of her sword and it kind of splashes through the billboard. But then they planted like fake cars in the street and the fake blood is going 
onto the street <laughs> over the cars. And it's like how big and ridiculous that is. It is a perfect encapsulation of what this movie is and what it's trying to do. It's like showy camera movie. I mean, showy, showy camera movements, music pretty much wall to wall. And it's just like a, a shameless revenge movie with high style. I love that about it then. Rewatching it now. <laughs> I loved it now. So you like shamelessness. 100% because <laughs> there's no half measures in this movie. Tarantino set out to like make a sensory blast of a movie. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what he did. He didn't try to fill it with like, you know, a whole lot of subtext. It doesn't have a lot of metaphors in it. It's, it's, it's reloaded without the, uh, the, the big words. <laughs> it's reloaded without the big words and without the CGI, at least yeah. without, you know, the same sort of level of CGI anyway. But especially the fact that he made this after Jackie Brown, which is like the polar opposite movie in every single way. It's, it's very sort of subtle and slow. And, you know, Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs, these are movies about like tough guys talking. And this is just it's it's a it's a statement, you know, in the other way where instead of talking, it's action, you know, instead of inaction, it's it's action. What you're telling me, because again, I have not seen Kill Bill, although Kill Bill 2 is on my list. For the next year. It's weird. You're going to watch that after not watching the first one. <laughs> well, what's interesting, what, what what I keep thinking about as you're talking about this is, um, what's the most recent one? Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Okay. So I'm looking forward to watching that mm -hmm. uh, again. I've seen it before and I really enjoyed it. But it's a weird movie where like the first two hours feel like they're its own, it's a, it's its own thing. You've seen To Kill uh, Once yeah. Upon a Time, right? Yeah, I have. So, and then there's like this almost like addendum, this like epilogue um, where the the Hollywood stars who are, you know, capitalizing on Hollywood violence, they're going to be punished. And yet they end up winning with, you know, violence beating more violence. And it just makes me kind of wonder what Tarantino is trying to say about Hollywood violence with Kill Bill. It's sort of like, it's it. what you're describing sounds like it's kind of like, I mean, is it like an, an homage to, oh, yeah. to Hollywood violence? Oh yeah. It's, it's an, it's an homage to pulpy cinema, to Hong Kong cinema, to mm -hmm. exploitation movies in a way, except it's modernized. Everything is elevated to like the nth degree. There's a chunk of this movie that's in anime. It's just a cartoon, never explained. They have a whole backstory and that is, that's the chunk of the movie for like 15 minutes. There's a chunk that's in black and white and then it flashes back into color. Crazy cinematography, crazy style. And the style is the substance in something like that. But on a deeper level, this school of rock, we've talked about like Fight Club and Blair Witch in 99. They, they're, they've been a part of my life, you know, mm -hmm. like my entire adult life, these movies have, have been a part of it in some profound way. So I think that looking back, that they kind of opened my mind to different styles of art. They kind of helped mold my tastes in a way. And you don't need to understand all of the Hong Kong cinema references that Tarantino's mining from here to get what he's doing. But I think that that sort of the the brilliance of it is, especially of, of discovering this movie at a certain age, is like, if you love Tarantino, 
then you want to find out like, oh, okay, what are these references? Where, where is this stuff coming from? So I want to find out the movies and the filmmakers that Tarantino loves. And so that becomes a gateway that just feeds itself, you know, in a cycle. And then it's like 18 years later and you have a podcast and you rank every movie <laughs> on Letterboxd and you write stuff about it. You know, it's like, it, it's fueling the obsession. So when I'm looking back, I kind of feel like this movie is a celebration of all the stylistic flourishes that got Tarantino into movies in the first place. And I think it had a similar effect on me as a teenager. So looking at this ranking of my top five for the year and saying, well, maybe this shouldn't be number one because it's not very deep. That's just such a backwards way of, <laughs> of evaluating what's important to you. I just couldn't do it. I mean, this is full stop. The, the my most favorite movie of the of the year after i watched it i was like so hyped i haven't seen it for years and i was so happy that i loved it as much as i did mm -hmm. back in the day and uh it's not going anywhere it's that it's my uh, hard number one kill bill that that comfort movie you know that reminds you of childhood yeah yeah in, in a way yeah it definitely should very good so um we have the reveal has been revealed should we talk about other oscar kicks oh yeah um, I've got lots of them. You got some? All right, let's hear some. All right, so Best Actor, if Johnny Depp can get nominated for Captain Jack Sparrow, Jack Black can get nominated for Best Actor. <laughs> so who do you kick? I would kick Jude Law in Cold Mountain, and I would kick Ben Kingsley in House of Sand and Fog. Did you watch House of Sand and Fog? Yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah, you I didn't wouldn't. like it? No, I wouldn't invest your time in that. I did. I liked it, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a moment in House of Sand and Fog where Ben Kingsley's character gives this prayer that I thought was a really intense and very believable moment. Um, however, yeah, I would, I would, um, I don't know. I think I would I, keep Sean Penn as my, as my best yeah. in that category, but Jack Black should be recognized. I think Jude Log definitely could get kicked for there. Yeah. In my opinion, uh, best supporting actor. I would kick, um, I'm going to butcher his name. Digimon Hansu mm -hmm. in America. And I would slot in Paul Bettany from Master and Commander. We've talked about that. Yeah. And I like Tim Robbins in Mystic River, but I would actually give this award to Benicio Del Toro in 21 mm. Grams. He is so good. Tim Robbins movie. feels a little over the top yes. in, in the soapy. movie. Definitely soapy. Yeah. Yep. Best adapted screenplay. I've said before, Lord of the Rings. The screenplay is not what makes these movies nope. memorable. It's the special effects. It's the direction, not the script. So that is out of there. In its place, I would make my winner for best adapted screenplay, American Splendor, mm -hmm. Shari Springer, and Robert Pulcini. This, you hit on all the reasons why. It's so inventive, yeah. and it comments on the form in a way that's unexpected. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're just going to give points for creativity, if all of that stuff is in the script, come on. And the lines are great. Like, yeah. I mean, they're coming from Harvey Picar's work probably, but there's so many like profound little nuggets that that's what I, that's one thing that I look for. Like what, what are the pithy af aphorisms that, <clears throat> that you're going to remember? And, uh, that one's full of them. So yeah, I, I kicked a loss in translation from my big top five, but I think it definitely deserves a spot in cinematography yeah. to make room, kick cold mountain. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd also kick sea biscuit <laughs> <laughs> surprise, surprise. Um, but my clear winner with this is kill bill. All I've talked about is the style and the camera yeah. movements and the colors. Um, I think that the biggest oversight of the Oscars is the fact that kill bill wasn't at least nominated for cinematography. Crazy. You think it should have been director? Well, director, that's another one that I've that I really went back and forth with because I only had one slot open because I kicked Peter Jackson. 
because Lord of the Rings, it's a it's an accomplishment. I get it, but mm-hmm. these movies could use some some editing. I think we could agree. <laughs> so to give the directing uh, award to him seems a little bit iffy. So I went back and forth between American Splendor and Kill Bill with direction. Mm. But the fact that all of that stuff sort of is in the script with American Splendor, I I went with Kill Bill here. Mm. But I actually was torn on the winner. And part of me in directing? wants, yeah, part mm. of me just wants to give it to Peter Weir for Master and Commander mm. because. If there was another category where I would give Master and Commander an award, it would be cinematography. Yeah. And if Kill Bill wasn't made this year, it would have gone home with some gold. So <laughs> maybe maybe give him a directing, uh, you know, yeah, the ma- consolation prize. Th- that is one thing that I think we, we've talked before, like what can movies do that other art forms can't? And it's got Master and Commander has has great visuals. The, the scenes, like the silhouettes, you know, the guys yeah. going up the, the, the ropes. I and can everything. picture it sharply in my yeah. mind right now. The music is so great in Master and Commander um, with their actual classical music playing in their, in their little quarters. Mm-hmm. Um, the acting is fantastic. The writing is great. It's just, it has, it has everything. And they did some really crazy stuff with the sound for that movie also. That, that's one thing I think is, is one of the reasons why it's such a standout. Um, so for me, I would kick Renee Zellweger, Renee Zellweger off the supporting actress pedestal. It's kind of a little also, uh, over the top, you know, it's just not my favorite kind of style of acting. Um, Cold Mountain had so many problems with the movie in general. Um, (laughs) no, a lot of people seem to love it, but I would kick her off and I would put Jennifer Aniston from Bruce Almighty into really? this movie. Nice. Okay. Have you seen this in a while? I it's, don't know. It's been a long time. Yeah, but she has these scenes where she's kind of like the victim of Bruce Car- of Jim Carrey's like craziness, and it just you're just so heartbroken for her in this movie, and I think she pulls it off super super well. Um, I will also kick Seabiscuit from cinematography, and I would I would um, think about um, in America for cinematography. And 28 Days Later, just because of the innovation with the digital yeah, camera work. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. That's, that was pretty mm-hmm. um, pretty arresting. Like the, Again, the scenes of walking through London and everything was, was uh, quite remarkable. I would also kick Peter Jackson for Best Director, and I would do Sofia Coppola as a winner. Um, she had a limited script that she wrote, you know, so it's her own fault that it was limited script. But <laughs> the point is, it wasn't just, let's, let's do what the writer said. She had to get improvisation from admittedly a genius in Bill Murray, but she had to figure out what to use and what not to use and things like that. And there's so much natural material gathered from, from shots around the city that weren't even necessarily scripted out and planned that I think that's kind of a very impressive directing feat to turn like almost like a quasi-documentary um, approach to going to just gathering natural stuff and turning it into something that turned out as good as Lost in Translation. Um, and just that relationship, that chemistry on screen, you know, she insisted on getting the cast that she was going to have. She, yeah. she gave it to Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson without even like getting other people to try out or anything. She just, she knew what she wanted. She had the vision and she pulled it off. To me, that's the best directing um, of the year. Also, James Horner was nominated or he won for House of Sand and Fog. I think he was nominated. But I'm, yeah, Howard Shore won for Lord of the Rings. But 
I, I, I don't know. I don't really get into Danny Elfman or J James Horner. They seem very predictable and just like yeah. strings and everything. I would give it to um, Pirates of the Caribbean for the score. I mean, talk mm. about an iconic score. Um, it was an interesting story. Klaus Badelt and Hans Zimmer were kind of like the key guys who wrote that. But there were 15 composers who were involved and they tried it. They had to turn it around really quickly. Um, and the accomplishment of that is, I think, tremendous. So I, I think that should have got nominated and probably won over the other ones. Let me give you my golden take. Let's hear it. I'm going to make it quick. This is the worst movie year we've done so far. Really? That's my golden take. In oh. another year, School of Rock and 28 Days Later could have easily been edged out, I think. Yeah. But I just didn't feel compelled to put anything else above them. Mm -hmm. Didn't feel strongly enough. Their personal picks, I definitely do not see them as absolutes. And a lot of other years hasn't really felt that way. And I think that's because what we're dealing with here, Brian, is a year with no masterpieces. Hmm. And I looked back... 99, Masterpiece. Russell Crowe said the Master and Commander is Masterpiece. He did say that on Twitter. So, <laughs> But 99, you got The Matrix, Fight Club, Blair Witch, Stone Cold. Yep. Sixth Sense, maybe, that's maybe four. Mm -hmm. uh, 2000, American Psycho, Crouching Tiger, Unbreakable? Mm, I don't know. <laughs> that was my number one. So maybe three, maybe three there. <laughs> oh, one, you have Mulholland Drive, Fellowship of the Ring, In the Bedroom. Mm -hmm. Three, oh, two, Punch Drunk Love. The, the pianist i wouldn't i wouldn't call but if you if you want to then it's go up ahead. there for me but yeah punch drunk love clearly i think in that group you could easily find even if you don't agree with all of those that i listed you could easily find three or at least one per year that it that you would call a stone cold masterpiece i don't so think kill bill's not a masterpiece i thought about it you I, just were praising it i love it i love it but i was thinking about what what to me defines a masterpiece and i think that it's sort of taking familiar feelings and making us experience them in unfamiliar ways. You know, if you think about like mm -hmm. the dream logic of Mulholland Drive, or you think about how sort of abstract and intimate Punch Drunk Love feels at the same time. Um, Fellowship is doing something completely new. The Matrix is doing something completely new. Fight Club is very divisive at the time. But Kill Bill is working off of a lot mm -hmm. of, of touchstones that were already there. It's just sort of elevating them, modernizing them. So... I love Kill Bill, but I'm not sure that I'm willing to say that it's 100% masterpiece. I think the most, the as far as originality, I think that um, American Splendor is is pretty remarkable for originality. Um, but yeah, a lot of the other ones you don't necessarily get that get that feeling. I think there's a little bit of of some kind of a genius and originality in Lost in Translation, but. Yeah, I can I can see that. When I was first looking at the O three list, I was like, I don't think I need to get as many in this this time around. And yeah, all good. Well, I already did my golden take about the uh, the desert island, so mm -hmm. we'll move on. The next episode, we're going to visit another biopic, Ray, <laughs> starting two thousand four. Ray Charles starring Jamie Fox. Yes, and we want to hear from you. What was the best movie of two thousand three? Let us know. We'll read your answers on the show. You can find us at bestpicturethis.com on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. Visit patreon.com slash bestpicturethis if you would like to help choose a bonus episode. Thanks to WNZF and Mark Lilland for producing. And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. That helps us reach new listeners. Thanks for listening. Until next time, remember the best movie of 03, Master and Commander. Go, Bill. No question. <laughs>